Hello and welcome to this JP Morgan Research podcast as part of the IMF Spring Meetings Update Series to discuss the themes and takeaways from our recent conference in Washington. My name is Johnny Gould and I head the EM strategy team here at JP Morgan and I'm joined by two of our senior emerging market strategists, Saad Siddiqui and Ben Ramsey, as well as Nikolai Alexandru, a senior emerging market economist here at JP Morgan. In this podcast, we'll focus on some of the country-specific or idiosyncratic situations that we heard updates on at the conference. Some of these fall into the distress category naturally, but not all of them do. So let's start uh, geographically uh, in EMEA EM, Nikolai, let's talk about Tunisia. Um, This has been one of the distressed countries which we had felt had good prospects for avoiding a debt restructuring, but some recent comments have cast uncertainty on the IMF process, which is key to that. How would you categorize the current situation at the moment? Uh, Thanks, Johnny, and hello, everyone. Um, I would say yes, it's still a case where uh, we believe uh, that restructuring is going to be avoided. We recently published actually on Tunisia as a feedback from um, the meetings in uh, Washington, D.C. It's clearly a problem program, right? Because it's stuck at the staff level agreement level. It's been stuck there since October. Uh, and the progress in that regard, as you highlighted, uh, has been rather uh backwards than forward uh there needs to be more discussions i would say uh between uh, uh tunisian authorities and the imf and those discussions happened uh, last week they are probably ongoing uh, when it comes to uh, what's needed uh probably the president needs to be uh, brought uh, on the side of uh, uh cooperation with the imf and i was guess as long as that happens then probably uh, the program the program can uh, move forward uh, we still believe the program is uh, possible because financing needs are high uh, and in this context uh, imf is uh, necessary for tunisia to be able to uh, uh, manage through uh, these difficult uh, times thank you let's move then to uh, ukraine uh, sticking with you, Nikolai, as well. Obviously, Ukraine continues to suffer because of the Russian war. But given strong support from donors and the IMF, the economic situation is actually somewhat stabilized and there's an improvement in activity. Can you discuss the latest developments and outlook for the country? Sure. Um, on the growth side, we have now uh, the official uh, number for 2022, right? It's a contraction of 29.1%, which it's a country at war, so the, the drop is actually a lot better than uh, what was initially expected. If you remember, uh, there were forecasts even from the World Bank in excess of 40% contraction in 2022, right? So it's not that bad. What this shows is that Ukrainian economy is more resilient than uh, initially feared. Uh, we are seeing uh, rather uh, good recovery already this year too. So uh, growth in 2023, uh, it's probably, I would say, doing a bit better than what official uh, sector um, uh, initially expected at the beginning of uh, of the year. When it comes to authorities, I think there are several uh, important aspects to highlight. One is that um, the external funding of the budget deficit has been insured, 43 billion, it's basically there. Uh, and there could be more than that in order to have uh, some buffer. 
Uh, at the same time, uh, there is growing focus on uh, reconstructing and rebuilding Ukraine so that people who left the country can return. Uh, World Bank estimates uh, more than $40 billion in immediate funding needs uh, in this uh, regard. Um, the authorities are moving uh, forward with uh, discussions and uh, uh, engaging uh, both uh, locals and external uh, advisors uh, for that. Uh, when it comes to monetary policy, uh, I will make uh, just one quick point, and this is around uh, a strategy to return to flexible exchange rate because it's under the IMF program, uh, and uh, authorities have to prepare uh, conditions uh, that needs to be fulfilled uh, so that uh, uh, Ukraine could go back to flexible exchange rate regime. And final point for the country as a whole, uh, IMF sees Ukrainian debt unsustainable. Uh, the finance ministry has put an announcement uh, around restructuring of uh, Ukrainian debt, only external debt. It's important to point out no uh, local debt, only external debt. Uh, but I think the other aspect which one needs to bear in mind, especially after I, I spoke at the beginning about uh, uh, growth recovery, is that this is more about burden sharing than uh, you know, uh, actual debt unsustainability, right? And this is this is important because I think it's going to be uh, quite relevant as we get closer to uh, discussions about uh, debt restructuring. Thank you. So let's move back into to Africa and talk about Zambia, Nikolai. Um, Zambia is obviously continues to face some difficulties in moving forward with its debt restructuring under the common framework. However, eventually Zambia will be a template for other debt restructurings under the common framework. So what are the main sticking points and how can they be dealt with? Yeah, this is definitely not an easy topic, uh, Johnny. Um, Zambia moved aggressively uh, to have uh, the common framework uh, operating uh, and being implemented and therefore delivering uh, that uh, restructuring and also to have an IMF program, which uh, helps in that regard. Uh, but things uh, have did not work exactly as expected. The main issue is uh, around uh, uh, financial assurances from uh, the official sector, right? We know very well that uh, those assurances were given, including from China, but somehow they um, uh, do not uh, appear anymore. So there is, again, an extended discussion about obtaining uh, financial assurances, not just from China, but also uh, other official uh, sector creditors uh, in order to be able to move the staff level agreement, because Zambia has a staff level agreement for the review, to the IMF executive board. Only in the aftermath of obtaining uh, financial assurances from the official sector, Zambia will be able to go in, the for in front of the uh, IMF uh, executive board. Uh, once that's done, then the next step would be engaging uh, private sector uh, to restructure external debt as well, because in the case of Zambia, uh, local debt is not supposed to be restructured. There's been some rumor in the market about uh, uh, touching uh, local debt as well. However, uh, authorities are not keen in that regard. The IMF also is not keen in that regard. Uh, it might have to be done for debt sustainability reasons, provided Zambia is unable 
to uh, do enough on the external creditor side, but otherwise uh, there is a strong desire to uh, keep uh, outside uh, local debt from uh, debt restructuring talks. That's all for me. Thank you, uh, Nikolai. Saad, let's bring you in here and, and let's switch to talk about Egypt, which has been uh, of great interest to investors since it got its uh, EFF approved last year. But there have been concerns rising again recently. So where do we stand on that front? So indeed, I mean, Egypt's um, EFF was agreed in December of 2022. And you know the first review uh, was basically due from the middle of March onward. So that was kind of the first availability date um, for the uh, 260 odd million SDR um, for the first review. Now that review um, still hasn't gone through yet. And uh, as you can imagine, there was a lot of discussion about uh, Egypt and what the status is of that upcoming uh, first review um, at, uh, in, in, in DC. Um, I think where we stand right now is a bit of context is required. Uh, the current EFF that Egypt has with the IMF is very different to the ones that they had um, in, in recent years, because this um, uh, EFF really does emphasize kind of deeper structural reform, things like privatization, for example. Um, and one of the issues is when you're dependent on privatizing SOEs is that sometimes those transactions can just take time. Uh, they can become you know, unstuck for all kinds of, of reasons. And I think that seems to be one of the, uh, the issues at hand right now is we're probably going slower than expected on uh, SOE uh, privatization, although um, I do think progress is still being made there. Uh, the second issue has been about the currency and there's still some you know, concerns that you know, this is a currency that is still being heavily managed. It's not uh, completely uh, free floating yet. And also that's part of, um, uh, part of the, the reasons that's resulting in a delay uh, of this review as well. Um, I think we, we come out of this thinking that you know, we probably, you know, if you look at the, the, you know, the comments made by the IMF managing director last week, it was actually quite positive on Egypt. So it makes one think that we probably will um, get through this first review. It's going to, it's already a little bit, you know, uh, delayed compared to where, you know, expectations, it might be delayed a little bit more. Um, but I think key is really going to be um, about the currency. And I think one should expect that um, to become, you know, more um, kind of free floating before we can get through that review. And I think on things like SOE privatizations, the fund can be uh, a little bit more understanding as long as progress is being made. Um, you know, we can um, uh, still get this first review done. So bottom line on Egypt, um, there's clearly a bit of concern. I think the first review probably will get through, but you need to see some more currency adjustment first. 
Thank you. And, and let's finish up in EMEA EM region and talk about Turkey Saad, where really it's more an idiosyncratic event driven with the elections upcoming. So how are investors thinking about these upcoming elections for Turkey and, and how could they impact capital flows? Indeed. So these are very significant elections for Turkey coming up and um, they're actually, I think, very relevant uh, you know, for all of emerging markets in the sense that Turkey is one of the largest uh, emerging markets. It's weight in the indices has fallen in recent years. So there's clearly a lot of interest um, amongst investors uh, into these elections as well. If you look at the polls right now, it does seem quite close, um, hard to call what's going to happen. But ultimately, I think what's really important for investors is the set of policies that are going to be pursued post-elections. And I think if you do have a move towards uh, macro orthodoxy, um, getting an exchange rate that um, you know is is kind of a bit more free floating, and uh, we kind of go back to an inflation targeting type of monetary policy framework. In that event, you know clearly Turkey could receive significant inflows. Um, but absent that, I think it's really going to be the status quo. Thank you. So let's move to Asia and talk about some of the special situations there. And, and we'll start with Sri Lanka. Uh, and Ben, uh, we've had over the last month, Sri Lanka received board approval on, on its IMF EFF program um, after having financial assurances from China. Now the authorities need to iron out the specifics on debt restructuring in the short term and over the longer term, there are questions about some of the program's parameters. So what was the nature of the discussion on those topics in Washington? Yeah, thanks, Johnny. Well, it, it, to some degree, it's pretty similar to what we just were discussing in Zambia. Um, those financing assurances in this case were apparently given uh, and, and were given in a credible way. And that, that's what allowed the program to, to receive board approval. Uh, but when you you try to get uh, some transparency, some some more specifics about exactly what may you know how how that may play out uh, from the side of, of bilateral creditors, there's still some uncertainty, and it seems like actually the the manifestation of the the delivery of those assurances is going to be crucial to get to that first review um, in the case particularly of, of of what the Chinese have perhaps agreed. To do again, delivering on those assurances is still a question mark. Um, it, when we go in the in the near term, the authorities are certainly focused on uh, delivering the rest of debt restructuring. It looks like the first order of business will be a domestic debt restructuring, uh, and they do uh, put forward that they hope to have something by the end of next month. Uh, and they do understand that uh, external bondholders, given you know some lack of under clarity on what can potentially be delivered. On the official sector, and not not expectations that there will necessarily be much beyond hair uh, beyond maturity extensions. Uh, the you know external bondholders are are want to see just how much uh, burden the the domestic bonds will be asked to take, and I think there's an expectation and a fear uh, from external bondholders that at the end of the day, the the the, the part of the the, the debtors uh, the, the creditors that are asked to, to deliver the most are going to be uh, on the external bondholders side. Um, so can this ultimately mean that we're going to be protracted across all these different sets of creditors? 
um, I think that's a risk, and uh, that's that's consistent with, with what we've been writing in terms of, of our, our strategy research. Um, it, in terms of the program parameters, I think there's just a lot of um, skepticism about Sri Lanka, you know, being a, a, a repeat offender of having to go back to the IMF, and uh, what's being what they're being asked to deliver it is an extremely important revenue adjustment, some five percentage points of GDP. When asked what's different this time, the authorities do tell a pretty convincing and coherent message that um, they've already delivered a lot. And given the the magnitude of this crisis, which was both you know a financing crisis, but with an important and painful balance of payments um, uh, component, the, 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 there's a, a consensus across society and there's a consensus across the political class that they have to actually do, do things differently this time around. Uh, and in this context, there have been some important um, tax reversal of tax cuts already on, uh, taking place. There is some expectation that more can be done going forward. That will be key. But uh, overall, I think uh, particularly external bondholders are looking at a program where the revenue part of the adjustment looks quite ambitious. Um, it, and it doesn't look like necessarily uh, you know, we're going to be sort of out of the woods in the middle part of in, in the middle part of this program uh, to the point where investors, uh, external bondholders, if you look at the POA program, are expected to, to deliver new financing. There's actually uh, uh, market access expected in the program by 2027, and I think that's something which which is uh, questionable by investors in, in this broader context. Thank you. So let's stay in Asia and, and turn to Pakistan, uh, Saad. Pakistan has yet to get its latest IMF review and the current EFF program uh, actually ends in June. So is there any update on the likelihood of that going ahead? Yes. So, I mean, Pakistan's had this very drawn out EFF program that, you know, began um, in, in 2019 and, um, you know, it's already had significant delays, you know, reviews have been and delayed significantly as well. And as you mentioned, Johnny, the program is due to end in June. So there's not a lot of time for that yet. And even this penultimate review uh, seems to be uh, seems to be dragging out. I think if we take a step back, you know, Pakistan is probably amongst the countries that are in some sort of debt distress right now. It's the one that's furthest behind in terms of us being able to see what a uh, you know kind of resolution of the current distress is going to look like, that's driven in large part by the political calendar. Um, national uh, general elections are due to be held in October. The current coalition government, um, you know, will find it difficult. I think ahead of those elections to. Um, to sell to the electorate, you know, very hard types of measures as well. And I think that's been one of the perennial problems of, of this of this IMF program. It's that, you know, success, you know, governments have found it difficult to impose um, kind of, you know, the, 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 the tough measures required um, uh, given, you know, the, the political economy constraints that they face. Um, it seems for this current review, um, there, most of the conditions that were required seem to have been met. It seems the outstanding uh, thing required were financing assurances from bilateral donors, you know, from GCC uh, creditors, 
Um, and recent news headlines suggest that those financing assurances are coming in. So I think, um, again, like some of the other countries we've been discussing, we might, we might not be too far from getting over the line for this review. But I think the much bigger question is what happens from June onwards, because from June onwards, this program ends. There's still very large gross external financing requirements. Elections are going to be even closer at that point. And really what's required, uh, what's going to be required is a, is a new uh, EFF program. But that's going to be very difficult to negotiate uh, given the political calendar. So I think we remain in this kind of cloud of uncertainty uh, for Pakistan, even if and when we get through uh, this next upcoming review. Thank you. So let's finally switch to LATAM countries uh, and let's start with Ecuador, Ben. Um, the macro and fiscal situation there looks pretty solid, but the market has taken uh, a hit given political uncertainty. So how are market participants and the authorities discussing the balance of risk there? And what will it take, do you think, for the market to gain more comfort in those fundamentals? Yeah, thanks, Johnny. Uh, I mean, to, to borrow Saad's uh, just used terminology, uh, we have a cloud of uncertainty here, and it's it's uh, for, you know very much focused on the political side. Uh, if if we look at Ecuadorian uh, external bonds vis-a-vis -vis some of the others in in, the, in terms of the, the lower rated and distressed names and in, in in the region and in the world, Ecuador has really been. Uh, taking the biggest hit uh, as we went through the, the course of the surprise uh, election result in February, and then an impeachment attempt, which which went against the government, and then an impeachment attempt, which came subsequently, and the president uh, is now you know facing the, this this political trial, uh, a president which let's recall is the first uh, engineered one of the most successful the first you know, successful completion of an IMF agreement than we can recent memory. Uh, in Ecuador uh, has been supported by external tailwinds in terms of Ecuador being uh, an oil uh, an oil producer, um, relatively low inflation given Ecuador's dollarization status and an important fiscal adjustment. So despite all these, you know, apparently stars aligning to get Ecuador back on the right path, there's just not conviction from the market that Ecuador is going to be able to uh, make the ongoing adjustments and be in the financial position to deal with important financing needs over the medium term and that market access may not be there. So in that, in that medium, with that medium term uncertainty, the, fa the, the idea that we've gone now potentially to this president exiting power in the course of an impeachment uh, process has added significant uncertainty with the idea, not that uh, he could be uh, in peace and then the vice president who you know comes from his team could be a caretaker government over still a reasonable macroeconomic policy until 2025, which is when the next election is scheduled. Uh, although even in that scenario, there's a likelihood that there would be more fiscal pressure from opponents and we would probably start to get off track in terms of the ongoing adjustment that's needed. It's more the scenario that in Ecuador, the president has another card to play. Uh, it's called so-called cross-death. That means that the president can both dissolve Congress and then call new elections, whereby he, both the president and the Congress would be up for new elections. Uh, that would take place if he were to play that card in the second half of the year. Uh, the president can stand for re-election, but Lasso's own popularity is, is such that it doesn't look very likely that he would be re-elected. 
uh, there's a high likelihood in, in our view and in the view of market participants, if we go down that path, we could have social tension in the meantime. Uh, and then even if we get to the election, we don't know who could be you know, the next president, but Ecuador's opposition uh, are not particularly market friendly and not particularly given Ecuador's historical track record uh, friendly to bondholders. So I think there's just a fear that we could end up with a political vacuum in the near term that could be filled by uh, a, 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 an administration that could take you know, very um, confrontational stances towards the country's external goal. Great, thank you. And let's uh, finish up then with uh, a discussion of Argentina, which is another one of uh, the event-driven situations this year, uh, given elections. Actually into these elections, macro imbalances look like they're getting to pretty extreme levels as we get into that cycle. Assuming the economy can limp along until elections define new leadership, um, what is the outlook, Ben, for the elections? Do any of the candidates have a clear and credible plan for how to actually tackle those structural problems in the economy? Can I discuss a sandstorm of uncertainty in this case? Um, uh, the outlook is, is, is highly, um, you know, it's, it's very complicated. We have uh, an election whereby uh, the, the, the macroeconomic results look like they're going to, to mean that the incumbents have a very low chance of being successful in getting reelected in this election. We've seen, we haven't seen incumbents do well in the region or in emerging markets sort of general, but particularly in Latin America. Uh, and and the, I think market participants in general would not be uh, disappointed in the result whereby the center-left administration uh, has to hand over power to an administration that is more prone to, to adopting market-friendly policies. Um, the issue is we have a three-horse race at this point. Uh, and, uh, and the other complicating factor is in Argentina, you have uh, particularly in, in unique primary setup whereby the primaries are almost like a dress rehearsal of the general election. Everyone runs at once. and You have a sense of what the election outcome can be uh, in October already in August. Uh, in this primary process, um, uh, we will, you know, at this point, it's hard to see whether we can have, uh, likely we'll go to a second round, but it's hard to see whether it will be the incumbent center-left government against the, um, basically the establishment center-right, uh, the coalition, which does have a structure team and a set of policies that, that the market can understand, or we have an outsider candidate um, uh, a gentleman uh, named Millet, who uh, is getting a lot of traction given basically the, uh, the very tough macroeconomic and institutional um, tension that Argentina has been living uh, over, over these last years. Uh, and we've seen how, especially in Latin America, in the Western Hemisphere, we, that, that populist, uh, libertarian, right-wing um, uh, types of candidates can be attractive to uh, an electorate which is looking for alternatives to the status quo. Um, uh, so we, can, we, we really have a toss-up between A, what will be the combination of, of, uh, uh, of the matchup in the second round? Is it center-right versus center-left? Is it libertarian populism against one of these other components? Uh, and uh, a description whereby if we get the matchup with, with Millet in the second round, it's it's plausible that the voters of whoever didn't make it to the second round could support Malay. So there's a plausible scenario here where we have this 
center-right outsider, um, which, which I'm sorry, right-wing outsider, which takes takes power uh, in next year. Again, with, without a very clear program, without much of a, a, a structure or a team that we can identify, um, which makes it a much more complicated uh, outlook going forward to see how do you deal with it, again, are the very deep um, and, and structural imbalances which Argentina is facing. I think if we do get the um, center-right uh, team that was part of the, the prior Macri administration, there's still, we have to, we're not quite sure who will be that, the candidate from, from that grouping. Uh, we, we can see a set of policies that will be very difficult to execute, but at least there's, there's a sense of, um, uh, there's a sense of orientation and it would be towards you know, adjusting uh, the, the FX regime, but doing it in a controlled way where you wouldn't take away capital controls right away. It would be orientation towards an important and front-loaded fiscal adjustment, um, which will be a challenge in terms of uh, the political and social management of it, but uh, I think an absolutely crucial first step. Uh, and so, and there would be, you know, basically an orientation in terms of how to communicate these steps to markets that, that you can imagine could be coherent uh, and it's try to set Argentina on the right path. Um, but at this point, we have uncertainty as to whether or not that team will make it into power in order to have the opportunity to try to execute uh, what would be a very difficult policy adjustment, even if they have a, a clear set of ideas on what needs to be done. That's great. Well, thank you. And that brings us to the end of this podcast. Thanks, Nikolai, Ben and Saad for your thoughts. And thanks to you all for listening. This communication is provided for informational purposes only. Please read J.P. Morgan Research Reports related to its contents for more information, including important disclosures. Copyright 2023, J.P. Morgan Chase, all rights reserved.